Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, still the home office edition. Today, I'm sitting down with Suzanne, Tidy, Stevenson, Erkin A and Randy Prebula to talk about in vitro diagnostics and its developments in time of the pandemic. I don't want to spoil anything, but I think I took a lot out of this conversation and I hope you will too. I'm going to keep the entry short since we're going to hitch other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Welcome everyone to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare podcast. Today, I have Arcane, Susan Tidy Stevenson and Randy Prebula on this episode. And before we talk a bit more about in vitro diagnostics, especially in relation to the ongoing situation we are having right now, I would like to have a short introduction. So Susan, if you would be so kind to start. Certainly. This is Susan Tidy Stevenson. I'm a senior director in the medical device practice group in Washington, D.C., My background is primarily in in vitro diagnostics. I came out of the in vitro diagnostics industry. Hi, this is Erkan I. I'm a senior associate within the medical device practice group at Hogan Lovells. I have a background in biology, earned a PhD in genetics, and have conducted research mainly in the cancer biology field before transitioning to a lawyer. I spent a significant part of my time focusing on the in vitro diagnostics. And the last in the round, we have Randy Prebula. Uh, first of all, I bothered you for weeks <laughs> to get with on the podcast with me and your team. So thanks for that, that you're taking the time. So Our if you pleasure. could give a quick introduction and then we are going to touch and start. Certainly. Uh, well, I'm Randy Prebula. I am a, an attorney with Hogan Levels. And uh, I also, like Susan Nurkang, have worked extensively in the area of in vitro diagnostic devices. I was in industry for the better part of 15 years developing technology like this uh, on contract with various federal government agencies and private companies. Uh, I am a biologist by training as well before I became an attorney, and I spend a significant amount of my time every day helping companies that develop these tests understand the regulations that apply to them and regulators understand how the tests work and what they're intended to do. Before we dive deeper into the topic, I would like to touch base and Arkan and Susan, could you give us a quick overview what is considered to be in vitro diagnostics? Sure. In vitro diagnostics are what they, they sound like. They're um, outside the body and they are diagnostic most of the time of your general health. You know, you go to the doctor and you get a blood test. That's considered to be an in vitro diagnostics test. Do you take cholesterol tests, some of the over-the-counters, and that's considered to be an in vitro diagnostic test. Erkang and Randy, would you like to add to that? Yeah, so the, uh, the in vitro diagnostics can take multiple forms such as swabs of mucus from inside of the nose or back of the throat, or as Susan said, blood taken from the vein or finger stick. And IVDs are used to detect diseases or other conditions and can be used to monitor a person's overall health to help cure, treat, or prevent diseases. Thank you, Erkang. This is Randy. I would add to that that anytime you take any substance out of the body, whether it's the hair or the tears, or saliva, or urine, or any other material that can come out of the body, and you test it 
to look for some marker and use that marker to get information about the patient or their health status or their likelihood of developing a disease. That's really how broad in vitro diagnostics are. You can use them to both assess prognostically. Is someone likely going to get sick based on some marker that you detect? Or have they been infected by a disease, an infectious disease? Or are the diseases that they have, like diabetes or, or heart disease, creating markers in their body that can help you predict how to treat them? They're basically as broad or as narrow as the companies develop them to be, and they can look for any marker that's associated with any disease in any body fluid, depending on how the test is developed. So they can be quite broad. And especially around the SARS-CoV-2 situation, there is so much floating around especially when it comes down to testing and if you have the virus or if you're already having antibodies. So there are so many IVDs that are being granted EUAs. Could you give us a quick overview? And maybe before we even head into that, you explain what the EUA is. So um, in emergency conditions, such as uh, emergency health conditions, such as we're going through right now with the stamp pandemic, FDA has the authority to grant what they call an emergency use authorization. And typically those types of applications that various companies or laboratories provide to FDA are very much abbreviated, very much abbreviated from what FDA typically looks at when they are clearing or approving uh, an in vitro diagnostic. The process right now for these EUAs, the agency has actually developed, which are very helpful, templates that a company will go through and fill out and then provide very much, again, I'm going to say abbreviated testing data that supports the performance of those assays. I just want to add that for the EUA devices, FDA holds a lower standard so that the medical device, medical products that may be considered as a EUA are those that may be effective compared to the usual standard of evidence for effectiveness that FDA uses for product approvals. Yeah, and I would add to that that the EUA process, the emergency use authorization process, applies in the United States to diagnostic tests that are being used for a number of different kinds of markers, which, Julius, you alluded to in your question, antibodies versus antigen versus living virus or the RNA from living virus. It's important to note that whether it's an emergency use application in the United States or it's another kind of application outside the United States, both the regulators and the companies developing them, but more importantly, the healthcare providers and the patients using them need to really understand what the test is for and what type of information you're getting from it. And I think that as we go through this dialogue, it'll be important to note there are differences depending on what you're testing and why you're testing it. And I, I don't want to micromanage that discussion, but I think it's really important that anybody who's listening to our podcast understand what you're testing for doesn't always mean the same thing to the same person. How it's used and what that information means really does depend on who you're testing, why you're testing them, and how you're testing them. I think that's an interesting point. I would really like to go through that. You already kind of touched base on specific points for the tests. So I think it could be interesting for the listener to learn about the different situations and what are the specifics of that device. So there are diagnostic tests. Those are the tests that detect parts of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses and can be used to diagnose infection with the virus. These would include molecular tests, mainly the PCR-based tests, and also antigen tests. So these type of tests detect virus and tell you whether 
you are infected with the coronavirus. And then there are also antibody tests, also called serology tests, which are tests that detect antibodies from the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. These tests cannot be used to diagnose a current infection, but they are used to tell you whether you have been infected or exposed to the virus. I think it's really important to note that there, that is a key distinction. You can develop antibodies even if you never got sick. You can develop antibodies even if you were never infectious. You develop antibodies if you've been exposed to the virus. And not everybody who's exposed is necessarily going to get sick. It depends on how much virus they're exposed to, where they're exposed to it, how much of it gets into their body, whether it survives long enough. There's a whole complex nature of things. You can always be exposed to something and get not sick, asymptomatic. You don't actually develop symptoms, but you were infected and you can pass that on. And there are a small number of people who can be exposed who don't get sick. Whether they don't get sick because there was too little virus or because they had enough protection already from related viruses that they've been exposed to in the past, it's, it's, it's a complicated mixture. That's why these antibody tests, they show exposure. They don't show that you got sick or that you were infectious. The other tests, the molecular tests, which are mostly PCR-based, but they can use other methods. They look for RNA or antigen tests, which can include RNA, but they can also include proteins and sugars on the virus. Whether they're present in your body, they're much more diagnostic in nature. They're telling you, you have had the virus or have the virus inside of you right now. And that's why they're, they provide much more information. And that distinction is something that a lot of people don't understand. They go into a doctor and they ask for as an antibody test because it's what's available. The doctor says, I have an antibody test I can test you. That's not going to tell you whether you are infected. It's going to tell you whether you've been exposed. And that distinction is often lost on both the doctors and the healthcare providers and the employers or the universities and most importantly, the patients. And there's also there's also the chance, uh, and it's the limitation of these serology tests, that you could have been exposed to something that cross-reacts with the particular test technology, uh, the antibodies or the antigens that they're using in that test to detect antibodies in a person. And so you actually could have been developed antibodies that possibly cross-react, and that's when they call it a false positive. So that's important things to know about these tests that, you know, what, what is the chance of there being a false positive or a false negative with some of these serology tests? And just for my amateur understanding, even when you were infected, you're not going to develop antibodies every time, right? So there's, even when you get tested afterwards and you have ah. been affected... Just you have to explain that to me because you are sure. the expert. So Julius, just your questions. There, there, there are two things related to that, and I'll absolutely, absolutely let Urkang and Susan jump in here as well. The time between when you're exposed and when you develop antibodies varies. It varies based on how old you are, how healthy you are, your immune status, how much you were exposed to. You can develop antibodies very quickly, or you could take longer to develop antibodies. That's usually several weeks, and that period of time is called your seroconversion time. When you go from being antibody negative to being antibody positive, that time varies by individual, but can range from weeks to up to a month or longer. What kind of antibody you produce and what kind of antibody that's being tested, that also changes over time. 
Usually when you're first exposed, you develop one kind of antibody called IgM, immunoglobulin M. And then usually you convert over time into immunoglobulin G. That's natural. That happens with anything most people are infected to. Again, depending on your health status, if you're immune compromised or if you're older, if you're younger, if you have diabetes, it can impact the timing and the amount of antibody you develop. So that's one thing. You can be exposed today and not have antibodies until two weeks from today or four weeks from today. And if you're tested for antibodies in that period, it doesn't mean you weren't exposed. It means you haven't responded yet. You haven't reacted to that exposure yet. There are also the possibilities that you'll be exposed to so little material that you won't develop antibodies or your antibody levels will be so low they can't be detected. So this is why testing is not as, it's not as easy as saying, I'm going to go to the doctor and get tested. It's what you're being tested for, how often you're going to be tested, when you need to be tested. All of those things are part of understanding how these in vitro diagnostic tests work. And anybody who assumes that they can go to their doctor and say, I want to be tested today, and that result is absolute, it means I've been infected or not infected, or I have antibodies or don't have antibodies, it's always the possibility, as Susan mentioned, of getting both a false positive result, but also getting a false negative result. It's negative not because it didn't work properly, it's negative because you tested at a point where you didn't have the ability to respond yet. And again, it's, we just want people to understand, whether they're regulators or companies or patients, that you have to take the information in context. You have to think about what you're being tested for. Otherwise, you might be misled into thinking you're safe when you're not or thinking you're at risk when you're not. And that's why we think this is an important topic to share with people. And when it comes down to you get an actual test and you're waiting, why is the timing and why is, is it taking so long on your results? I'm not sure from my view, the amount of testing which is going on right now that the laboratories maybe don't have the capacity, but obviously you working some, with so much client on those projects, maybe you give a, bit, a few insights there as well. Well, I think from a perspective of why it takes so long to get a test result, I think one point that you pointed out is that the laboratories are, are pretty overwhelmed right now. But in other cases, it depends on the type of test that they're doing for you. It just takes a lot of time. For some of these, um, as Erking mentioned, these RT-PCR tests, these uh, molecular tests, some of those actually take time to process. The capacity for the laboratories right now, these aren't high-volume throughput tests. And that, that's, you know, certainly something that the agency has set as a priority, trying to get high-throughput assays, uh, meaning that they can handle more than, let's say, nine samples, ten samples. They want them to be able to handle many, many, many samples. So I, I don't know if you all would like to. I think the other thing I just wanted to mention, and I think we'll discuss this in a little more detail, about the time it takes to get through FDA for these EUAs. But um, Randy and, and Erkang, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, why does it take so long to get uh, a test result? Well, I think one of the things to add to that is it depends on how many samples a laboratory is receiving, uh, what type of individual patients they're getting samples from. If a laboratory is set up with, let's say, for the sake of argument, they have 10 analyzers, the systems that are needed to run the test, and each analyzer can run one test at a time and takes about an hour. If that takes about an hour with one sample in that instrument and they have 10,000 patients to test, They don't have enough time, 10,000 hours, to test 10,000 samples. 
to be able to run those instruments continuously, even with 10 analyzers, you're talking about a thousand hours to go through that. Now, if the, as Susan mentioned, if the, you can run four samples or 10 samples or 300 samples, or if you can pool the samples together and run them in small groups and then only retest those where you have positives, that helps your workflow a lot. But those are all things that impact the ability of a lab to turn around a result quickly. Some of these tests are intended for point-of-care testing, where you get a result from a single patient within a very short period of time. Others need to be sent to a central laboratory, whether the samples are being collected at home and mailed to the laboratory or not. All of that impacts how this is done. And as Susan also mentioned, I completely agree, the issue of how long it takes to get your test reviewed and approved by FDA plays into how much, how soon you can offer it. That would be my next question on current challenges for the FDA, because um, a lot of companies coming um, out with this kind of devices because the demand is so high. So how does the FDA react to this? Because uh, they just have a specific capacity and I'm pretty sure that they are more likely swamped with requests of all kinds right now, especially in in the pandemic. They absolutely are swamped. I mean, they're, they're handling many, many, many applications right now, and they're trying to prioritize. Um, as Randy said, they, they want to get point-of-care tests. They want to get rapid tests. They want to get high-capacity or high-throughput tests. So when some of these tests go through, they triage as to you know, what they're claiming they can do and where they're going to be used. I mean, Erkang and, and Randy have both, and I have worked uh, with many companies and the frustration at the company level, we understand. But you also have to understand there's only so many people within the group at FDA that have the expertise to review this, these kinds of in vitro diagnostic tests. and They're pretty overwhelmed. But as a client, is there anything you can do to give a little bit more momentum in the process? Erkang, I'll jump in, but I'd love your thoughts on this too. I, I think, Julius, one of the most important things that any entity who wants to have their product reviewed by FDA can do is to be very clear about what they want their test to do, what data they've generated, and why those data show FDA that the test works for that purpose. Erkang mentioned this very early on. The standard that FDA holds an emergency use application to, an authorization EUA, is a reasonable likelihood of safety and benefit. So it's not proving that it's as effective, but that doesn't mean you're also going in with no information about how the test functions. You have to be able to provide them the information they request in their templates or tell them what other information you have that answers the questions they need. Have you shown that the test is sensitive? Have you shown them that the test is relatively specific, sensitive, and is it detecting what you're looking for? Specific, is it not confusing it with other things, other viruses, other diseases? Are, are you showing that you can get a sample out of a patient and that it's stable long enough to be tested? Are you getting the marker you're looking for in that sample type? Was it saliva versus oral fluid versus uh, nasal swabs versus other types of swabs? The more that the clients can communicate to FDA why they know their test to be reasonably reliable and effective for what they're using it for, the more they're going to be able to fall into this higher triage area. Um, as, as Susan mentioned, you want FDA to understand wh- how your test works and why it's a benefit. And if you're not communicating that, if you're just assuming that the agency understands or the reviewers understand the benefit of your test, 
then you're relying on someone who's overworked, has lots of submissions in front of them, and, and is being challenged to work sometimes around the clock to understand your thinking when you haven't explained it. To, or, Kang, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I think Randy stated very well. I think FDA, they need to take priorities. They have to pick certain uh, submissions for UAs that they can review early. So what do they uh, base the selection on? They do not have time to review everything, then determine whether this is earlier in the queue or late in the queue. So they have to tell it from the, the quality of the submission, the quality of the data, the completeness and the performance of the, the test. But then for my understanding and Randy, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago that a couple of states reach out to biotech companies developing those kind of tests and asking for support or that they try to get their product faster on the market and increase their testing capacities and all those things. Would this kind of approach be more likely out of the hands of the companies as a lot of things are still conducted by the FDA? I think it's important to note that the FDA has been very flexible in trying to help create frameworks for these tests to be able to come to market. They allow laboratories and in vitro diagnostics manufacturers to notify FDA that they're offering these tests while they're still validating them. And that includes molecular tests, antigen tests, and serology, antibody tests. They're able to say to FDA, I'm going to start offering this test on the basis of this information, and I'm going to be pursuing an emergency use authorization. The federal government also granted authority to specific states where those states have robust laboratory management programs to allow the states to manage some of those tests, some of those tests offered by those clinical laboratories. Uh, that had not been done in prior emergency situations. That's being done in this emergency situation, again, as a mechanism for getting more testing available. There have been uh, other various actions that the, the reviewers have taken and, and the federal government has taken with respect to whether they need to submit EUA applications or not. While they certainly can submit EUA applications and that gives them certain protections, there's also this tension between whether FDA is going to regulate every laboratory test or not and whether these tests can be offered and how they can be offered. It's a long-winded way of saying that there's been both pluses and minuses, that workload is making it harder for agency to review these tests. The clarity of the information, if you develop a completely new test for which a template doesn't exist, how do you do that? These are all levers that are making it faster and slower and impacting consistency. And if things change, if FDA says, we're going to ask for this information that we didn't ask for before, all of that impacts people. So I, I think my biggest piece of advice to anybody in this area is to pay attention when FDA makes an announcement of changes. Because you have to look at whether that change impacts what you've already done, whether it makes it easier, makes it harder, whether you need to gather new data. Don't presume that things are static. So I think that my greatest advice is pay attention to changes. Yeah, and I think I just want to add that the agency and Randy, they've been very, very flexible. When they have, um, especially with uh, some of the larger companies where they, they know the products through the, a normal channel, the, the in vitro diagnostics that have been other kinds of in vitro diagnostics that have been uh, cleared or approved. So they've been allowing for 
what they consider some of their priorities, which are antigen tests and molecular tests for diagnosis, to shift some of what's required in an EUA to post-EUA authorization. They get the company to make a commitment that they will do certain things within that e requirements for information within that EUA, that they can shift it to EUA uh, post-authorization, which I think is really good. They also are now working, they just developed a template for what they consider to be non-lab tests, which means those are tests that can be performed at home, uh, they can be performed at employment areas or in schools. So they're working towards that. We haven't seen any EUA authorized tests yet for that, but they are working also towards that as well to make more and more tests available. The only other thing I wanted to add, sorry, Julius, the only thing I also wanted to add to help companies or other clients FDA holds a weekly town hall, virtual town hall meeting, where they go through things that have changed. As Randy's saying, it's very important to understand that this is a very dynamic area right now and things do change. And those town halls are set up to address questions of test developers and laboratories. Yeah. And the situation during the pandemic differs immensely from what is the normal and the standard, right. how FDA is conducting approvals um, for um, IVDs. That's correct. Julius, I want to just, I want to, before you go on there, I, I want to say that, yeah, I would agree that FDA has been flexible and FDA has worked to bring tests to market. But I want to reiterate something I think that we all have seen, which is that they're not, at least in my knowledge and to what I've seen, they haven't sacrificed the quality of the science they're asking for. They are asking for basic information that is absolutely necessary to know that a test is working reasonably well. So they're being flexible where they can be, but I haven't seen them in any situation where I've reviewed or worked on an EUA with any client sacrifice basic science. They have said, there are things we need to see. We're going to see them or this test isn't going to move forward. They've called products that have gotten EUA authorization back off the market to say, don't use this test because here's the risk associated with it. Or this test needs this modification before it can be run. So yeah, they've been flexible, but they haven't been flexible to the point of being, and I want to make sure that's clear. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Especially when it comes down to sensibility um, and IVD and all this testing, is the FDA, even in this kind of situation, sensitized based on the whole Theranos situation? Was this something, not sure, I just, I just read about it um, a couple of days back and I said, at least I wanted to raise the question, not sure if it touches here and it's, um, it's a relevant point or not. I hadn't thought about that. Erkang, Susan, I mean, I, I don't see how the prior issue with Theranos and the widespread discussion about how they would be able to diagnose anything in any context from a very small amount of blood uh, and how that, I mean, obviously that colors the marketplace. I'm not sure that FDA ever felt that that technology had advanced far enough in a review to be even on their radar. I don't know. It's a good question. I'd love anyone else's thoughts. I haven't thought about it in the context of the of the COVID. Sorry for chiming oh, in. No, it's, it's always an excellent. It's always an you know, excellent perspective, especially if there's any news in the press about thinking about how these types of issues play into FDA's thinking. It's, it's always relevant to consider what's happened in the past and companies that have been not as cognizant of FDA regulation or not as appreciative of FDA regulation in the past. 
not disparaging any any individual company named here or otherwise, but it certainly can color the public perception of how the regulators regulate. I hadn't thought about it in this context. I just wanted to add in again, as, as Randy said, for science, it is science-based. I can't answer your question, Julius, about what you were just talking about, but also wanted to let you know that, you know, for the serology tests, where obviously, you know, in Europe was the first to uncover that some of these tests were not very good. FDA has implemented a program with NCI in the U.S. where the serology tests are now subjected to an independent testing by NCI. And when Randy said that FDA has pulled some products off the market, it's because when tested at NCI, the performance was much lower than what the company was claiming. Okay. Then we cleared that. I was really proud of that question. <laughs> but if we if we take a look in the glass bowl, do you think the pandemic and the developments over the last couple of months will influence decisions of the FDA or how we are approaching specific product development in this field. Are you asking for IVDs in general? Yeah, IVDs in general. Well, we're hoping. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're hoping some of these uh, things that FDA has been doing will carry over to other IVDs. But I just think this is time will tell. Uh, yeah, I would second that. I, I agree with Susan. I think that we're hoping that some of the ways in which FDA has interacted with companies during the pandemic because of the need to be more interactive, some of the ways in which they've adapted certain protocols and thresholds for establishing certain performance characteristics, they do have applications in other areas. Uh, for example, uh, rare conditions, uh, combinations of markers that associate across various conditions various diseases, uh, helping predict in ex exposure or predict outcomes, um, whether you can join markers together and look for both, you know, this particular disease and other diseases in the same test. Those are all areas where FDA has expressed interest in using new ways to look at the data. And in some cases, they have looked at new, you know, developed new ways to look at some of the data. We're hoping that it, it does roll over into other diseases and other conditions, not just emergency situations. I also agree with Susan, time will tell. I don't think any of us think we're going to go back to the way things were pre-pandemic, but how much of the telehealth and data review and notification process and validation and interactive discussions carries forward, very much yet to be determined. We're hoping it will be, but we'll see. And on a personal level, and I'm not asking how we were able to get through the pandemic in your home office uh, <laughs> and you it seems that you're all still at home but from a from a professional level the last couple of months um, and the experience and the fast developments which went down any specific takeaways for you personally well I'll, I'll go out on a limb i would say that as somebody who works in this field all the time testing alone is not enough tracking alone is not enough development of therapies alone is not enough Future development and testing of vaccines is not enough. I think we, to face a situation like this, we need all of those things. And, and I think we need common sense in the people who, and understanding in the people who rely upon them, the general public included, healthcare providers included, regulators included. I think the biggest take-home message to me is none of this happens in a vacuum. And so many people in all of those areas, regulators, the companies, the healthcare providers, the patients, the public, I think there's too much of looking at these things in isolation. And I think that's, uh, if there's any one message I want people to take from this is that you have to look at things in their totality, not in isolation. Yeah, I would agree with Randy on that. Okay. Yeah, I agree. 
<laughs> I'm the only one who's out on a limb here. <laughs> At least they agreed. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. We all we talk about this as part of our day to day work all the time. So, <laughs> makes um, makes makes sense. <laughs> okay. That was really informative, especially um, for me as I wasn't involved from my perspective in this kind of work you're doing. Well, Julius, I would, I would ask you a question on the other side of the coin. We, because we live this all the time. We're seeing yeah. this all the time. We're working on this all the time. We see things in certain given ways. Is there anything about the process of testing that, that you've always wanted to know about as a, as a layperson that we haven't touched on. You actually got me, got me the information because I was tested. I was not, I wasn't tested for antibody, but I was tested because I was sick and I thought, okay, um, maybe I got exposed because we had a couple of colleagues who were in Italy on vacation right after the start of the pandemic. And my main interest was to differentiate between the various tests which are floating around right now and to understand what the target is and especially on the antibody test there was so much there's so much confusion and so less information from kind of an amateur perspective when you go to the doctor and say okay I want to see if I had it I don't had a fever I had a small cough and let's do an antibody test and my doctor just said to me okay that doesn't make sense you got tested you were negative and so far over here in Germany you can just buy tests privately so there is no in coverage from insurance um, because the insurer said we, we, we can't rely on the result the results because they are still not really clear over here um, so we are not going to pay for it. I was really looking forward to this conversation just um, to share some light about the situation around testing because there is so much disinformation or non-information going on and um, I think I learned and I have the takeaways. So have you anything else you would like to share before we jump off? No, um, other than I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. And, and Erkang and Susan, I really appreciate you taking your time out of this, uh, your busy, very busy days to participate in this. And thank, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It was fun. Thank you, guys. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Suzanne, Erkan and Randy, I'll link their bios in the description below. I'm going to repeat myself, but we move on to a new channel. So if you don't want to miss any new episodes, hit the subscribe button on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Stitcher and all the other platforms you prefer. By the way, just to let you know, if you have an Alexa device at home now, you can ask her to play our podcast as well. And I hope that she's going to. We are going to hear each other in about two weeks. So thank you for tuning in and we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.